Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the As of Yet Unnamed podcast. This is our fourth episode, and joining me, as always, is Parth. Hey, what's up? And today, we're going to be doing a rundown of some of our favorite albums of all time. Uh, Parth has a top five list he's going to go through, and I picked out five of my favorite albums that I want to talk about. And we're just going to kind of bounce back and forth and you know, talk about what kind of music it is and what we like about it and why we like it so much. And I believe Parth is going to start for us. Yeah, I'll start off with my fifth favorite album of all time, and that is Rust in Peace by Megadeth. Uh, this was released in September of 1990, and uh, it's basically just is a thrash metal album, uh, one of the, the classics. Like the thrash metal album. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, I just think this is, like, easily the best Megadeth album. It's it's just a really fun album. On I think on this album, they're kind of on the top of their game. Like, uh, the lineup they had for this album, I, I think, is, like, the classic lineup. Like, the best lineup they've had. Like, everyone on their instruments, uh, you know, was very proficient. Um, this album has some of the best drum tracks and guitar solos out of any Megadeth album. Yeah, for sure. Also, the production I really like. Uh, I really like the guitar tone, uh, and everything's mixed perfectly. Like you can hear all the instruments in the mix. And yeah, again, just like the songwriting is really good. All of the riffs are like the riffs are some of the best they've ever written. Um, the solos from Marty Friedman are you know, excellent. He's you know just an excellent uh, lead guitarist. This just I don't know. Every song is really good, but if I had to pick some like highlights, I would have to say "Holy Wars" and uh, "Tornado of Souls." Uh, the, the solo in "Tornado Tornado of Souls" is like maybe my favorite like metal solo of all time. Just a lot of feel, but also pretty shreddy. I've also really liked Poison Was the Cure. Uh, it's like a shorter track, but it's got a ton of energy. Also, the the uh, lyrics on this album are kind of um, probably some of the best they've written. I mean, it's pretty it's kind of standard metal stuff like war and uh, you know a nuclear apocalypse, but kind of kind of political. Not like a partisan political, just more like problems in the world today, which was a common topic in thrash metal at the time. Right. But it's like, it's like fun, you know, they're not like, it's not like poetry, but... <laughs> no, I've never described Dave Mustaine's writing as poetry. <laughs> but it's like way better than some of the later, the stuff he was writing later, like when he started writing like ballads and stuff later in Negative's career. Yeah, he was, he was at the peak of his writing, I think, on this album, both lyrically and like musically. Right. right. They, they kind of lost a lot of the goofier stuff from like their debut album, like Mechanics. There's not really a song like that lyrically on here. Yeah. But it's just fun to listen to, and a lot of the songs do have like a, a message that would still be relevant today. Mm-hmm. And this is also their first album that doesn't have a cover song, which I appreciate, because I don't really, I feel like the cover songs were like the weakest parts of their previous albums. And yeah, it just... This it's like surprising how big of a step up this is to me for, from their previous album. Like in two years, I don't know what happened, but they, it's like they just went in the studio and decided, 
We're going to make a masterpiece. Or something. We're going to write the best thrash metal album of all time. Yeah. And a lot of people think they did. Right, right. Uh, but, yeah, just like super fun album that just, like, I don't know, makes you feel like, like a badass. <laughs> <laughs> it's got that classic thrash metal energy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all I have to say about that one. All right, and the first album I'm going to be talking about today is uh, Spiderland by Slint. This was released on the 27th of March, uh, 1991, and it's only the second album released by the band, and it was also their final album. The story behind it is that uh, as soon as the album was released and finished, uh, the lead singer, Brian McMahon, checked himself into a mental hospital for like mental health care. And the band just kind of dissolved, and the members went on to form other projects, and Slint kind of died. But they've since gained quite a cult following because of this album. I would say it's an album that's truly innovative and ahead of its time, and it kind of took the basis of post-rock that had just only barely begun to form and fused it with this like post-hardcore, math-rock kind of energy. And it creates... Kind of a unique listen and a distinctive sound that I haven't really heard replicated on any other album. The vocal delivery is pretty unique. Uh, there's a lot of spoken word delivery that almost feels like storytelling, like listening to your friend tell a story about something that happened to him last week or something. Well, there's also some more kind of melodic singing and then even some screaming at points. And the vocal delivery always feels pretty authentic and like emotional. Like it doesn't feel like he's faking the emotion behind the vocals. It feels real. Like it was coming from a real place. And this, along with kind of the focus on quiet, loud dynamics, would become a staple of post-rock. Like a lot of Godspeed, You Black Emperor tracks use like spoken word samples that are kind of used in a similar way to what the lead singer here is doing with the spoken word parts. And again, kind of using that big build for a crescendo, a crescendo core as it would become known later. Mm -hmm. Kind of the build of this big emotional climax. Uh, there are tracks like Don Amon and For Dinner, and they work wonderfully kind of as uh, ambient tracks almost, just guitar-driven instead of electronic, which would have been the style for ambient music at the time. Other tracks like Washer and Good Morning Captain, which is personally my maybe my favorite track on the album. It's a perfect closer. I've never heard a better closing track. They uh, exemplify, again, that kind of crescendo building dynamic where it'll start off really quiet and almost borderline ambient, and then build to this big noisy climax towards the end of the song. And then finally, uh, Nosferatu Man contains a really fun breakdown. Uh, it's not like a breakdown, like a metalcore breakdown or anything, but it's just a really fun part of the song. You can kind of headbang along to it, and it's just a fun listen. I would say it's probably one of the most influential underground albums of all time, just in terms of like modern alternative music. I think you could trace a lot of stuff back to kind of what Slint was doing on this album. And, like, the songwriting and composition has been pretty influential with me on kind of my personal songwriting and stuff with our band. Yeah, uh, I've actually heard this album as well. And uh, I wasn't really a big fan of it the first time I heard it, but it it has grown on me quite a bit. And I think it's a pretty good album. Um, I don't, I mean, it's not obviously not in, like, my top five or anything, but, yeah, I... I definitely agree with a lot of what you said. Like, it's definitely pretty emotional, and I can feel like, like the atmosphere in the album is like very lonely and like, uh, this is like dark. Yeah. 
It's kind of like you usually associate post rock with being more like, uh, kind of like positive, like not not so dark in nature. And that's kind of what makes this stand out to me is that a lot of the music here is kind of cold and dark and like introspective almost. Yeah. Instead of being so like expressive and you know, like over joyous and stuff like that, like a lot of new newer post rock is. Right. Yeah, it's definitely very ahead of its time. I mean, I don't know how they came up with this stuff in like 1991. Yeah, and it's a pretty big step up from their first album too, just in terms of the sound, like what they were going for. It's almost like two different bands if you listen to them. Hmm. And yeah, I agree with like Good Morning Captain being like a great closer. Yeah, I re- yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't change anything about it. <laughs> it's just like a great way to cap off the album. Yeah. Definitely uh, something you should check out. Yeah. Very, very atmospheric rock. Deals a lot with like growing up and like losing your, you know, your youthful innocence and all kind of maturing into the adult world. Right. Kind of like the yeah. struggles that come along with that. Yeah, yeah. I do like a lot of the themes on the album with the in the lyrics, like about growing up. And like it's like it's like kind of relatable. So, and there's also stuff about like social anxiety, like in tracks like Dynamon. So you know it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah. All right, and then I'm gonna hand it back over to Parth to introduce our next album, which actually made both of our lists. The next album, uh, number four on my list, is uh, Boris at Last Feedbacker. By the band Boris. And this was actually released on Christmas Day in 2003. So this is basically like a a post-metal album, uh, I would say. It's got a few different influences. It's got like drone, some psychedelic rock, uh, some, some like noise. And I only heard it for the first time in like, I think in... December of last year but it pretty quickly grew on me and yeah it it's like one of the best albums I've ever heard now obviously (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just like it's like a journey you know it's got five tracks and each track flows into the next and it starts off really kind of calm and quiet uh pretty kind of minimal I guess yeah almost ambiance just yeah. kind of long, open guitar chords and kind of some light feedback welling up. Yeah. And then, like, over time, kind of uh, more instruments come in and uh, more stuff starts happening. Like, the second track is pretty much a whole, like, psychedelic rock jam. Yeah. Um, and it just it gets kind of louder and uh, noisier and more chaotic. Um and it builds to like part four, which is kind of just like eight or nine minutes of noise, kind of. Just like guitar noise and feedback. Yeah. Very loud. Right. And it's like... There's not much like structure to it. No. Even like the drum tracks, it sounds like they like distorted them. Yeah. Like, it sounds like they've turned the volume up so loud that it's starting to like lose fidelity in the recording. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then like with the last track... It kind of goes back to being calm and quiet. It's kind of a reprise of a track two. Mm-hmm. So uh, the whole thing just feels like a journey, you know. And it's like, it's actually like cathartic. Because 
I don't know, for me at least, like, by the time you get to track four, it's just like, wow, noise. You know, <laughs> I, I can feel it. Yeah. The, the way they build up to it from, like, barely anything in the first track to, like, such a huge, like, cataclysmic sounding part four. It really yeah. does. It's like you say, it's cathartic in a way. Right. Yeah, the production is also, like, really good. I mean, it fits this type of music really well. Um, I mean, you don't want it to be, like, too clean or anything with this type of music. So, it just, it has, uh, like, the energy and, like, punch mm-hmm. when it needs to have that. And then it also sounds good when it's, like, it's calm. Yeah. It's, um... The, the title, Feedbacker, um, feedback's kind of in, integral to the whole album in a way. Just the way they use it to fill in the, the soundscape, like in the beginning, obviously, with the more peaceful and quiet beginning. And then part four again is just like a huge wall of noise, essentially, with feedback and just guitar noise and everything coming all over at once. Right. And I would like to say, too, that the solos on this album are pretty good. There's a part, uh, I think part three, where... It gets closer more to one of their other albums from this time, Akuma no Uda, which is kind of like a stoner, metal, riffier, solo-driven album. Mm-hmm. And some of the so- the solo in this section of Feedbacker, I think, is really good. It just highlights how good Wada is as a guitarist and kind of how integral she is to the band as a whole. Yeah. And also the, the vocals I like a lot. Uh, I mean, I obviously don't understand Japanese, but... <laughs> <laughs> I can I can feel the emotion in them. Yeah, so again, another very passionate delivery. Yeah. And I do like the way how the album kind of loops back around on itself. Like you said, the final part is a reprise of part two. And yeah. that's used to kind of close the album out. Right, right. It, it, all, it makes it feel almost like, like a, a journey, but at the same time, it's like a circle. Like you make the same journey over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's interesting. Again, I just like how kind of, like, dynamic this album is in the sound. Like, you've got your, like, heavy, like, intense parts. And you've got your, like, peaceful, like, almost, like, serene, quiet parts. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's got something for, like, all of your moods, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Uh The post-rock parts are, yeah, they're much more subdued and kind of beautiful in a way. Yeah. Compared to the... The post-metal parts, which are very loud and kind of in your face. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it's a pretty good just example in general of what can be done, like some like a really creative work in the post-metal scene. Like yeah. it's not just your state, like your typical like diff hidden or like atmospheric sludge band. Like this this album stands out, and I think it's pretty unique even today. Right, right. And like I don't know. To me, when I listen to this album. The image I get kind of in my head is they they just went to this like gigantic warehouse and just played the album like front to back <laughs> yeah. in one take. That's almost what it feels like with as like smoothly as it flows. Yeah, because you know there's all this like atmosphere and like I just imagined them in like a giant room. Yeah. So it sounds like it was recorded in a giant room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea like how they recorded this because it sounds like one take. But obviously, I'm sure it isn't. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of different tracks going on. I think, especially towards some of the more complex parts, like part four. 
Yeah. There's no, I don't even know how many different guitar tracks there are on that. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah, excellent album. Highly recommended. Yeah. So, uh, my number three album of all time is called Because the Internet by Childish Gambino. Uh, it was released in December of 2013. It's basically just, it's a hip hop album. Um, it's got a few different, um, styles though, different influences. It's got some like, neo soul type stuff and it's got some i guess like r&b type uh styles too and yeah it's this is like out of my top five this is probably the album that i connect with connect with the most emotionally and yeah this is another another album that kind of grew on me a lot in a short amount of time the first time i heard it i thought it was like it was like decent but within probably a month or two, it had really, like, become, like, something great to me. I just, I really, like one thing I really like is the production. It's pretty atmospheric. There's a lot of, like, reverb applied throughout the album. And it sounds, like, pretty lush. Just all of the, like, textures on the album, like the drum beats and stuff. Just sounds, like, nice on the ears. Also, I really like the sound of the album. It's very melancholy. Like, when I listen to this, like, wow. I feel sad. <laughs> I don't know. The, but, you can feel the sadness in the music. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, And it's like throughout the album. I think he did a really good job of like keeping that, that atmosphere, like that sound throughout the album. And also, like, the, a lot of the lyrics I really like, because he spends a lot of time talking about, like, loneliness and, like, existentialism, and I don't know. All that stuff is just, like, pretty interesting to me. You know, it's a lot more interesting than a lot of what a lot of what other rap talks about, like, girls or cars or whatever. And <laughs> <laughs> the gangster rap part? No, I'm, I'm not actually. <laughs> Yeah, he even, like, made a screenplay with this album. It, it, like, tells a whole story. Like, there's a main character. It's, like, a concept album, basically. And, like, yeah, there's, like, a story with this main character called The Boy. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't read the screenplay. I don't know about all of that. <laughs> but it's a cool, like, accompaniment. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. If I had to pick some like highlights, I'd have to say like Flight of the Navigator is like a beautiful song in my opinion. Like, every time I listen to that, I'm like, how how did he make this? Like, wow. That that's talent, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh Life the Biggest Troll is really good and uh Sweatpants on almost every song on this album I think is great. I think it's just like a pretty unique sounding album too in hip hop. Like, I haven't heard another album that quite sounds like this. It's like, the sounds are also kind of, very, it's very eclectic. There's a lot of different styles. There's some like, kind of random interludes he throws in throughout the album too. That Some of them are like less than a minute. And I think those are pretty cool. I, honestly, I think this is like, I think this is like underrated because I I don't really hear people talking about this album like it's like one of the best of the decade and I think it is. 
Like, you're championing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're making that push to get it the recognition it deserves. Right. Outside of, like, Childish Gambino fans, I like, I, I don't think most people would say this is, like, his best album. Like, I was even looking on, like, Wikipedia the other day, and apparently this is his lowest rated album on Metacritic. Really? Yeah. Like, how does that make sense? Does that make sense to you? No. Right? Yeah, I've definitely heard this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I honestly, like, don't get it. Because I think this is, like, super creative, you know. Like, out of all of his albums, like, this is definitely the most creative. And I don't know, man. This has, like, worked for me. Well, I mean, maybe the rating's on the upward trend. You never know. Yeah. That's true. I think people are finally coming around to this album. I think they're starting to see what I see. So that's nice. <laughs> oh, and also just like the performances on this album are all pretty good. Like I think uh Childish Gambino, he's good at the singing and rapping. And there's a lot of that on this album. Oh, also the uh the features on this album are all pretty good. Like I feel like they all contribute to the songs that they're on they like add to the album if you're like a hip-hop fan at all i would i would implore you to listen <laughs> to this album please <laughs> dang okay Carl, i see you yeah <laughs> giving this some strong love right, right. <laughs> yeah that's it thank you for coming to my ted talk <laughs> <laughs> well i guess with that we'll go on to my next one the next album I'm going to be talking about is Laughing Stock by Talk Talk. This was released on the 19th of November, 1991. And Talk Talk is probably best known for their early to mid-80s kind of synth pop and new wave style. They uh, gained quite a bit of radio play in their height of their popularity before uh, in the late 80s making a sudden and drastic departure into a completely different style of music, kind of blazing their own trail. Uh, with an album called Spirit of Eden. And Laughing Stock is kind of the culmination of all of that work. It's their final album and kind of the swan song of the music they were going to go on to pioneer, which would become the post-rock scene as we kind of know it today. For 1991, I would say that much like Spiderland by Slint, there's nothing that really sounds exactly like this. They really were kind of just exploring how far you could push the rock sound using guitar and bass and synthesizers and drums and trying to push that kind of setup as far as they could. The recording process of the album was actually Mark Hollis would have tons of different musicians that all played tons of different instruments come in and they would all just jam together and record all these jam sessions and then using what at the time was you know, cutting edge digital editing software he took all these jam sessions and trimmed them all down into kind of these six self-contained tracks that each kind of have their own unique style and kind of atmosphere that they're going to build. The first track, uh, Merman, and the last track, Rune, kind of encapsulate this more ambient style. It's a guitar-driven ambient, something else that was seen on Spiderland by Slint. But this kind of has a much different vibe it's got a lot of like dark jazz influence which is something that can kind of be found throughout the album and it creates this kind of warm welcoming soothing atmosphere with a combination of these kind of lush guitar tones very minimalist playing and uh mark hollis's singing 
which the lyricism throughout the album is all pretty minimal and very much up to interpretation from the listener, but you really get more out of his delivery than anything. Just the, the passion and emotion through his kind of restrained and controlled scene. He's got kind of a velvety, uh, smooth kind of voice that's always relatively low in the mix. He's never going too loud or straining himself. And it makes for a pretty unique listen. Some of the other things that they kind of blended together were art rock. Um, like I said, various styles of jazz, dark jazz, and kind of avant-garde jazz make some appearances on here. And they put most of their focus on the texturing and atmosphere of the tracks, as opposed to like the virtuosity or the technicality of their playing. Most of the guitar parts on here are very kind of loose and meandering, and they have that kind of improv feel that was contributed from the recording process. Tracks like After the Flood and Newgrass kind of foreshadow the influence that Drone would have in post-rock. These two tracks kind of have this meditative, trance-like atmosphere with these, um, like, kind of repetitive droning synths and very, very repetitive guitar parts that kind of form the basis for this, the soundscape of the song with lots of texturing of different instruments over top. And again, more pretty fantastic vocal performances. And then other tracks like Taphead have this kind of dark, almost bittersweet feeling that starts off very minimal, kind of becomes more all-consuming the further the track goes, and they kind of build on the very kind of minimal beginnings. And overall, I would say it's just a very unique listen. Um, I can't compare it to any other albums other than their previous album, Spirit of Eden. But again, it's not quite the same even as that. And it's another album I would say that you could tie a lot of modern music back to, just in terms of kind of the ideas behind the music and what they were doing with guitars and the more experimental playing style they were going for. Mm -hmm. And it's an album that if you are into any kind of rock or post-rock, either either of them, I would highly recommend listening to this album. Nice. I haven't heard anything from this album, so I, I can't say anything about it, but that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> it is very cool. <laughs> cool like a glass of water in summer. There's <laughs> yeah. all that jazz in there. Yeah, you, mm, I I'm not like a huge fan of jazz. Maybe not not my knobby for me. I respect it. All right, and I'm gonna hand it back over to Parth for his number two pick. So uh, my number two album is Colors by Between the Buried and Me, and this was released in September of 2007. And this is, like, basically a progressive metal slash metalcore album with, like, a little bit of influence from, like, tech death, technical death metal. And, yeah, this has been a favorite of mine for many years. I first heard it in my senior year of high school, and I immediately thought it was, like, the greatest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, and it's it's held up over the years for me. It's another album where, like, uh, each track flows into the next. There's eight tracks, and um, it really kind of feels like one long song, just broken up into eight tracks. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the stuff I said for Rust in Peace could be said here. Like, it's pretty technical, and everyone's kind of playing their instrument like like they're all at the top of their game 
also the production is very good like it's it's heavy like i like that the heaviness is there in the guitars and also the the mixing is very good like there's some nice parts where you can like hear even the bass like pretty prominently uh the drums sound really nice um just good really good mixing also it's just i don't know the songwriting on this album is like stellar like wow there isn't one section where i'm like oh this part is dragging or this part's a little boring or anything like i don't know man they just like went into the studio it made a masterpiece <laughs> again <laughs> they're trying to do it again with colors too yeah and they're kind of failing <laughs> they are yeah, i don't know well, we don't talk that. about that yeah i don't know about this colors too stuff but <laughs> yeah it's just like it's a really fun album just there's a lot of fun riffs and fun breakdowns it's very eclectic it's definitely like a bit of a weird album because they have these sections where they like change genres completely you know they have like a bluegrass section or like there's like a polka section and you think it like wouldn't work but it does work it it feels like kind of natural almost it's, it doesn't feel like they're like trying too hard yeah it, you would think that the sections like that would clash with the like the middle core stuff but it really doesn't it all flows together really well right I just, I have to say again, the production is like, none of their other albums sound, have like this type of production. And this is the production I definitely like prefer them to have. They actually remastered this album recently, like last year. And I didn't like the remastered version. It sounded worse, I thought. I would say like, the last two songs, like Viridian and White Walls is like, I mean, if I had to pick, that would be, like, my favorite part of the album. It's just, White Walls especially has a really strong, like, closing uh, that, like, ends the album very well. It's kind of a legendary song. Yeah. (laughs) With Between the Buried and Me fans. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. They just, like, maybe kind of capture lightning in a bottle here. Because they've never, like, um, been at this level since they made this album i don't i kind of don't think they will be again (laughs) yeah i don't i don't think they're ever going to reach this height again yeah especially since they seem to be like purposefully trying to you know recapture that lightning in a bottle right this album's pretty dynamic in its sound like there's a lot of like heavy sections with harsh vocals but then there's a lot of like clean guitar and even like with like singing and uh so Kind of like Feedbacker, you know, there's a wide variety of sounds. So it it goes from like, not super intense to like pretty intense within like the same song. So I think that's pretty cool. If you are are a metal fan, listen to this (laughs) for sure. I think I first heard this album in 2009 because there was a song on Rock Band 2 off of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was another, kind of like you said, I immediately like latched onto it. I was like, wow, this is something else right here. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. And it's kind of one of the only albums from that I used to listen to that long ago that I would still listen to today. Like, that I could still pop it on and be like, yeah, this is still really good. Right, right. And that might just be the nostalgia talking. Because, like I said, Colors 2 is not living up to the hype. No. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know. If, like, they release this album today, I don't know if I would like it as much. I really, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's not a style of music that I really listen to much anymore. It's just an album that I still really like. Yeah. It just, it, the style is not something that I'm usually listening to. There's right. no other bands, like, in the metalcore scene that I really ever put on anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a pretty nostalgic album for me. But I don't think it's just nostalgia. Like they, I, I think they did actually like make a really good album. Oh yeah, no, there is the songwriting is really good, like you said, and all the performances. There's some, especially some of the drum tracks are just insane. Yeah, their drummer is ridiculous. Their drummer's crazy good. I don't, I don't know how he does some of the stuff he does. <laughs> but yeah, any fan of metal would probably get a get some money out of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would call it a classic. Actually, yep, that's all I got on that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, the next album that I'm going to be talking about today is Death Consciousness by Have a Nice Life. Uh, This was released on the 25th of January, 2008. And uh, Have a Nice Life is a duo uh, consisting of Dan Barrett and Tim McCuga from Connecticut, I believe. And their debut album here is kind of... Very much so the experimental post-punk sound that they were going for early in their career. Uh, The album's actually mostly just a collection of all the songs they worked on from 2002 to 2007. And so stylistically, it's kind of diverse. There's a lot of different influences on here. There's things like, like I said, post-punk. There's shoegaze. There's some industrial. uh, Drone and ambient are pretty influential on the first half of the album. And it's another album that I would say is one of a kind. I don't really, outside of their second album, I can't think of any other groups that really have this same kind of sound. And like I said, the first half of the album serves kind of as the more ambient and introspective half, um, with songs like the opener, A Quick One Before the Eternal Worm Devours Connecticut, Telephony, and uh, Who Would Leave Their Son Out in the Sun being almost purely ambient, um, and other songs like Blood Hail or The Big Gloom and Hunter are much more of the kind of droning-type tracks, uh, Hunter being almost 10 minutes in length. All of this, however, is created using kind of the post-punk approach to songwriting, meaning there's a lot of very simple guitar parts and, you know, simple and effective, catchy guitar parts, bass written in the same way, and uh, a lot of drum machines, simple drum machine kind of beats that really drive the songs forward. And this carries over into the second half of the album as well. However, the songs here are much more traditional, uh, like Waiting for Black Metal Records to Come in the Mail, or Deep Deep, or Earth Mover, being much closer to, you know, a, a more typical post-punk track. And then there's even some industrial influence kind of throughout the album, uh, especially in the drum parts. The, the, the drum sounds they chose to use kind of evoke a very mechanical, industrial feeling. And uh, this makes quite a prominent appearance in tracks like The Future and I Don't Love, which happens to be one of my favorite tracks the group has ever done. Uh, and they have a lot of, like, pounding synths that also help conjure up this mechanical sound. All the vocals are delivered by Dan Barrett. He has an ear for melody. He can sing pretty well, and he has a lot of harmonies that he does with himself on the album with multiple vocal takes kind of layered over top of each other. But he also has an ear for dissonance. I, know, I like dissonance. I know you're probably not a fan of dissonance. <laughs> yeah, no, not really. But it can sound good, in my opinion. <laughs> and I think he, he does a good job of, you know, finding things that clash in a way that works. 
And he has kind of made his uh, mental health struggles that he was going through at this time in his life public knowledge now that so much time has passed and he's kind of in a different place in his life. And reading through the lyricism on the album and the book that comes with the physical release kind of shows the dark place that he was at during the writing and production of this. Lots of, like the accompanying book is kind of this esoteric paper about like a cult type stuff. And a lot of the lyricism is kind of allegorical and deals with themes of like hopelessness and loneliness and things like that. Whereas other tracks like I Don't Love are kind of upfront and in your face with, you know, you know, the depression and everything much more apparent in the lyricism. It's not hidden behind a metaphor or anything like that. And his delivery is always pretty passionate and honest. It always feels like this was coming from like a genuine place. Like he wasn't faking these feelings. Like he was really feeling the stuff that he was putting out there on these tracks. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's an album that I consistently go back to. I first heard it maybe four years ago, and it was one, another album that I was just kind of like, wow, this is good. This is yeah. something different, and I like it a lot. And it's only gotten better the more I've listened to it. Uh, it's very long, it's over an hour, it's like an hour and a half long, but I don't feel like there's any wasted space on it. Every track feels kind of essential to the flow of the album. And while it's not like, a concept album in the traditional sense where like all the songs kind of naturally flow into each other and make like a solid listening experience. I feel like they all kind of contribute to the overall themes and atmosphere of the album and it wouldn't be the same without any of them on there. Mm-hmm. Was it, was it uh, Dan Barrett who like did everything on the album? Is it like a one person project or is it like... Uh, they both contributed like songwriting like guitar parts and bass parts and he did he dan barrett just did all the vocals oh, okay tim mccoo only focused on the instrumentals which they both did okay but still the the like the sheer scope of the album is pretty impressive given that it's only two guys writing all this yeah some of these songs are pretty complex and have a lot of stuff going on yeah and the production is another thing i like um I mean, I pretty much ripped it for our music <laughs> at a certain point. Everything's got that, you know, super reverb-drenched, big, echoed-out sound with the vocals kind of being squished in the mix, kind of hidden behind everything. Yeah. And it kind of that's kind of helps contribute to, like, you know, the lonely atmosphere and themes of the album. He feels... The vocals feel very isolated in the middle of this, like, huge-sounding instrumental. Mm-hmm. If, any, if you're into post-punk of any kind, I would highly recommend this album. Although I don't know that you would necessarily like like it just because you like post-punk. Because it is pretty experimental for post-punk. Oh, okay. Didn't they, like, release a new album? Recently? Oh, yeah. They, their newest album was called Sea of Worry. Yeah. And it was much more straightforward. Much less experimental. I didn't like it nearly as much. Oh, dang. It was still, like, it was catchy. And it was uh, well-written, I guess, for the most part. But they even made a statement before that album came out and said that they were focusing on writing music that was easier to replicate live. Oh. They wanted to focus on that. Because these songs on Death Consciousness and their follow-up album, they were definitely not written with the live show in mind. <laughs> There's no way two guys could play these kind of things live uh, with as many different tracks are going on. That's pretty cool, though. Two guys made uh, this... It sounds pretty ambitious. Yeah. And it very much flew under the radar when it was first released. Um, It was one of those albums that nobody listened to until it kind of caught traction on, like, message boards online for, like, you know, underground music. Mm -hmm. 
somebody randomly stumbled upon it and posted it, and all of a sudden it was a cult classic, yeah. like five years after its release. Really? Yeah. Hey. Kind of like uh, Spider-Land by Slint. Same thing happened with it. Yeah. All right, now I'm going to pass it back over to Parth for his number one pick. Okay, so my uh, number one favorite album of all time, as of now, is uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye West. Uh, this was released in November of 2010. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, it's like a hip-hop album. <laughs> <laughs> it's much poppier than your Childish Gambino album. Yeah, I mean, you could say it's like a pop rap album, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I heard this for the first time in like early 2018. Yeah, again, this is an album that, like, grew on me pretty quickly. I remember the first time I heard it, I already, like, rated it four stars, like, initially, after listening to it once, and that, like, never happens <laughs> Yeah, that's to me. rare for Parth to like <laughs> something that much on the first listen. Yeah, so, like, you know I found something good. <laughs> <laughs> found something you like. Yeah, there's something I like <laughs> Not everyone likes it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, like, the main reason I really like this album is, I think, the production. Like, it just feels so grandiose. And, like, uh, there's so many, like, layers to it. And, like, most of the songs, there's a lot of layers. And it's just very lush. Like, it's just really, it's nice on the ears, you know. I know that, like... Kanye like put a lot of work into these songs. He, I don't know. He says like one of the songs on this album, Power, he put like like a crazy amount of hours into like a thousand man hours. I don't know. Oh, I don't know about okay. all that. But <laughs> okay, Kanye. <laughs> it's clear that he put a lot of work into them, and I don't know. It just I feel like it almost gives me. An ego boost when I listen to this album. <laughs> well, that's what's on display here. Yeah, this is yeah. Kanye's ego album. It is. It is. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like a fun album to listen to. It's got a lot of kind of like you know boastful songs. It's also got some more like emotional, like more introspective songs that like they like work for me. They don't work for everyone, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> my opinion on this album is much different from parts yeah yeah <laughs> i like okay the lyrics on this album are not the greatest like <laughs> there's definitely places where it's like maybe he should have like gone back to the drawing board or whatever like, <laughs> like rewritten some of these, these lyrics maybe done another draft you know <laughs> Sounds maybe, like a rough draft. Yeah, maybe not go with the first thing that comes in your head. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> like, some of these lyrics are like, not good. I'll admit it. <laughs> it sounds kind of silly. Like, but I, His IQ I, is also on full display. <laughs> <laughs> what? Said his IQ is also on full display. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, like, I just kind of, I'm able to, like, ignore all that. Because I just like the production so much. So, even like one of these songs, uh, Blame Game, 
has like a skit at the end of it with like Chris Rock. And it's just this really silly, like, uh, pretty, uh, like crude skit. And it's like the last two to three minutes of the song. And I've seen a lot of people say it's like, it's not good. And after listening to it once, it just gets like annoying on repeated listens. But I just listened to the beat during that part because the beat's so good. <laughs> I, I get people not liking the skit. It gets it, maybe it gets a little annoying. But like the beats, you know, <laughs> you get what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and again, this album just feels like epic to me it feels like like uh larger than life almost like it's more than the sum of its parts you know like if it feels like an event (laughs) (laughs) kanye's still trying to do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i don't know this is just like this album really works for me and now there is one song on this album that's clearly like the weak link Hell of a Life? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that song is just good. <laughs> <laughs> well, damn. <laughs> it is definitely not up to par with the rest of the album. He could have honestly just taken that song out, and it probably would have improved the album, I would say. Dang. Because of that song, I don't think this album was quite a 10 out of 10. It's like a 9.7. So you heard it here first, folks. Parth doesn't have an actual 10 out of 10. Yeah. That's, that's kind of sad, honestly, but maybe one day. Look, I'm sorry. I'm really picky, okay? I can't change myself. You really think something's going to replace my beautiful dark twisted fantasy on your list? Okay, probably not. (laughs) Maybe you'll just like hell of a life more. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I guess. Uh, you were so close, Kanye. Like one song. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. Like I said, I think almost every song on this album is like a ten out of ten. But I mean, if I had to pick a favorite, it would have to be Power. It was like. I think it was like the lead single from this album. I remember hearing it quite a bit yeah. back when it first came out. It was all over everything. Right. But yeah, it's just like the beat's really good. Even his lyrics on this out on this song is they're like uh he's just like boasting, but I'm like, yeah, it, you know, it gives me that ego boost, like I said. Like, if you're going to the gym or something, listen to power. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know runaway runaway is another great track uh many people would probably say it's the best from this album you know n- like nine minutes long and at the end i really like how he does that like like vocoder part where he like distorts his his voice like i don't know i feel it i definitely feel it uh, I know, I know you don't, uh, really, uh, care about this album. I, I don't feel it. Yeah, you don't feel it. Uh, and I can understand that. You know, I guess it's not for everyone. 
Kanye's ego is not for everyone. <laughs> I do like some of his later stuff from yeah. after this album. When he got a little more experimental with his sound. Right. Yeezus. Yeezus is pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, this this one is not for me. Yeah. I think I... You, you have it a 9.7. I think I have it a 4.8. <laughs> yeah. That's quite a difference. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's just not my style of hip-hop. Yeah. Is mostly what it comes down to. Okay, yeah. Any, anything uh, you like about this album at all? Well, I haven't listened to it in several years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so... That's a fair point, yeah. <laughs> I, I've I... heard Power a lot. <laughs> I've nice. heard Monster a lot. Yeah. Uh, those are radio songs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I get. Yeah, I wouldn't expect you to like this. I guess <laughs> my taste in hip hop's a little more out there than Kanye for the most part. <laughs> what you mean, Kanye is the most innovative experimental artist of our generation? Yeah, obviously, <laughs> the God Himself, Kanye West. <laughs> he made Yeezus. <laughs> But uh, yeah, um, I still think it's a great album. I mean, I don't know. I think it's gonna be hard to top for me personally, and uh, I'm not alone. Like, tons of people do love this album. It is a very critically acclaimed album. Most people consider it Kanye's best by like a long shot. Yeah, that is uh my number one right there. Nice choice. <laughs> I know you feel the same. Yes. <laughs> and my number one pick is also my beautiful. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, and uh, my actual number one pick is um, "Soundtracks for the Blind" by Swans. This was released on the twenty second of October, nineteen ninety six, and it was at the time considered to be Swans' final album, and kind of as such, it's. Less of a studio album and more just a collection of all of their unreleased and unused material, live recordings, and just all sorts of stuff dating from 1981 all the way to 1996 when it came out. It's less of a, like a musical album and more of like an experience or a journey. There's not a lot of what I would call traditional music on it. And a lot of it is a much more kind of like a sound collage, trying to evoke a certain atmosphere or image, using these very weird and experimental guitar parts. And Michael Gira uses a lot of very kind of strange samples. Uh, one of the band's members had a father who was in the FBI, and when he died, they gained access to all of his wiretappings and recordings from his time serving in the FBI. So they had a very large and strange pool of things to draw from. The album itself is about two and a half hours long and could essentially be called a solo album straight out of Michael Jira's mind because he was the one that did most of the work on putting everything together and arranging everything and all that. And it's an exercise in showcasing like the darkest, grittiest, and seediest kind of underbelly of society and the human condition. And, like I said, there's a lot of extremely experimental, like, guitar-based compositions. Uh, there's lots of, like, looping and, like, tape editing to put things together. Uh, there's live performances on here that are just presented 
like as a song there's not even like a live in the song title it's just presented like it's just another song and then at the end of it you'll hear the crowd cheering and there's a lot of very like kind of strange and surreal ideas present it's probably my favorite album of all time now that i've listened to it so much the other ones aren't ranked but this is definitely number one (laughs) (laughs) and it's kind of the best showcase in my opinion of what post-rock can do when you just completely throw out all the technical aspects of songwriting. Like, this is using guitar in the most experimental, like, non-rock way possible. And that's kind of what I like about it, is just how out there it can be. It, the album itself is basically just pure atmosphere. And the entire listen is very dark and somber and hypnotic. And by the end of it, like, I would say it's all-consuming. Like, <laughs> if you're having a good day and you don't want to ruin that mood... I would not recommend listening to this album unless you know what you're getting into. <laughs> I would compare it more to watching a horror movie, except you can only hear it. And it's some kind of strange avant-garde surreal horror movie from like David Lynch's darkest part of his mind or something. Sounds intense. Uh, yeah, it is pretty intense. Uh, the themes that run throughout the album are things like drug and alcohol addiction... Violence, isolation, and depression, uh, psychological and sexual abuse and infidelity, and just general nihilism and kind of the corruption of mainstream culture in modern society. Oh, wow. (laughs) I know, it sounds very pretentious, doesn't it? (laughs) But if you listen to it, I promise it makes sense. Michael Gira takes these anonymous recordings of things like uh, medical patients interviewing with their doctor or psychiatrist interviews... And even people that were wiretapped and weren't aware of it by the FBI connection that they had. And he weaves them together with his own, you know, twisted and grotesque lyricism that any fan of Swans would be able to instantly recognize. His his lyrical writing style is very unique. And he weaves all this together and kind of creates this, like I said, this sound collage of just droning nonstop ugly music (laughs) but in a good way (laughs) but there are tracks like helpless child or volcano or animus yrp uh the final sacrifice or the sound which i would consider maybe the best traditional quotation marks song on the album these have like a drum beat and like a guitar part you could sing along to them i wouldn't call them catchy necessarily but there are lyrics you could sing along with they make up what is I the minority of the album, and everything else is just kind of this dark void of misery. <laughs> <laughs> Songs like How They Suffer are just like a droning, dark ambiance with samples of people talking about losing their eyesight or how they can't walk anymore, and just all sorts of kind of depressing things. And it creates an atmosphere that I have never seen recreated in any other kind of music, post-rock or anything, has never quite given me the same feeling that this album does. It's extremely unique. Okay. And while a lot of it is very dark and kind of ugly, the more musical parts of the album, and even once you come to appreciate all of it, has kind of a dark beauty to it that, again, I think any fan of Swans would be able to recognize as distinctly their style. But this is kind of their style, pushed to the most experimental that it's ever been. I wouldn't even compare it to their newer post-rock stuff. All their newer post-rock releases kind of have the same vibe. 
an atmosphere that they're going for. They have the same goal. Whereas this is kind of singular and on its own and trying to trying to do something that none of their other albums have done. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's easily, I think, my favorite album of all time. Wow, really? Just for the sheer scale and ambition and how well it's accomplished. Wow. This is the one, huh? This is the one. Hey, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I've heard like a few tracks from this album. Um, I can't really say it's like my thing, necessarily. <laughs> You're saying that doesn't sound like your taste in music? That what I just described? <laughs> I, no, actually. <laughs> but like, uh, I heard Volcano. That was pretty cool. That was interesting. Uh, it's dark. It is dark. <laughs> Very dark. <laughs> I did listen to Helpless Child once. Uh, I, I didn't really like it. <laughs> I I'm just trying I'm just being honest. <laughs> I didn't expect you to. <laughs> yeah. But but the second track on the album, I can't remember what it's called. I was a prisoner inside your skull. Yeah, yeah, I think so. With like the sample of that guy, the like interview, I think. Yeah. Oh, he he was the the background of that is that he had been wiretapped without being told, but he had somehow figured it out. So he would just pick the receiver up and just talk into it. Because so, he knew they were listening to it. Huh. And so it's this kind of nonsensical ramblings about how fucked up you are. Yeah. And it's like it's like Michael Jira's way of talking directly to the listener. Oh. He's telling you, you're fucked up. What? <laughs> well, yeah, that was interesting. That song was cool. <laughs> and, and it has this, like, loops sample at the beginning. Some, like, voice, I think. Yeah. That was pretty strange. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, the atmosphere here is very unique. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, this probably requires a lot of patience to listen to, because like, it's two and a half hours. <laughs> it's not something that I would expect you to, like, sit down and listen to front to back, like, on your first go-round. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're not just going to pick this album up and be like, wow, this is the best thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't recommend starting with this album if you're trying to get into Swans. Like, oh, start man. somewhere else. But this is easily their best. <laughs> hmm. Maybe if you're on, like, a road trip, maybe at, like, night. Yeah, there you go. You might want to listen to this. Think about how horrible the world is (laughs) while you drive in the darkness. (laughs) (laughs) From what you're saying, I guess I can respect what they did. I mean, it definitely sounds unique. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got a lot of respect for it. It was pretty influential. On one of our albums, at least from my, you know, what I, my contributions to it, Distress mm-hmm. Call. Yeah. The more I listen to soundtracks for the blind, the more I realize how influential it was on that album. Oh, dang. Yeah. Hmm. Even things like on that album, on our album, there was like a, a sound loop that I used a couple times where I would pitch shift it or stretch it and loop it. It was just like a guitar noise that I used throughout the album kind of to thematically tie it all together. And he does the same thing on this album. There's like a sound that is like repeated throughout the entire album song, like in various songs and used in different ways. But it's the same sound. Yeah. I think the cover is cool. The album art. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's like it's just like a circle. Yeah. It's like pretty simple, but it's very uh, distinctive, like to be as minimalistic as it is. It's pretty recognizable. Yeah. 
And it, it kind of follows on their general cover design, at least up to that point in their career, having their name in big block letters at the top and the title at the bottom in big block letters Yeah, with the design in the middle. Distress Call was also inspired, I guess, by this, this album art. Yeah, the original album art for Distress Call was very much inspired by this album art. Yeah. To the point where uh, we changed it. (laughs) (laughs) But if you buy it on our Bandcamp, you can get that original version. Not that I would suggest you use it. (laughs) But Uh, yeah, there you go. That's my number one, Parth. Yeah? Wow. Huh. I I never... uh, I thought you just didn't have like a number one. Yeah, but the more yeah. I've listened to it, the more I think this is it. Huh? It's like the the logical conclusion of music. <laughs> yes, it is the logical <laughs> conclusion to music. <laughs> like I respect, like the like the composition, like how it's laid out and arranged. I respect like the music, like how it sounds, and like the themes and everything. Just like how heady it all is. It's yeah. just like what I want out of an album that <laughs> I've come to realize. That's good. At least as my music taste has kind of progressed further than, you know, metal, like I used to pretty much exclusively listen to. Mm-hmm. I like how one of the main genre tags on Rate Your Music for this is experiment. <laughs> just experimental. <laughs> Not experimental rock, yeah, just, just experimental. experimental. <laughs> <laughs> what do we call it? I don't know Experimental. Experimental. <laughs> Is this even music? <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for us today with this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to our uh, some of our favorite albums. Uh, come back for episode five because we're going to be talking about some unsolved mysteries. It's going to be a spooky one. Exciting. Mysterious. Yeah. But, uh, Until then, uh, take care and we'll catch you later. See you on the flip side.